This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this uh, joint Society of Professional Economists and Resolution Foundation event looking at the economic impact of, of demographics. My name is James Smith. I'm research director here at the foundation and head of macro policy. Now, you might, might be thinking that the current events are really what's distracting you at the moment. So it's not every day that somebody in the House of Parliament is forced to deny that the, gov that the prime minister is hiding under a table. So that, that's the... That's the world we're in, and you know, people, people will be forgiven for being focused on what is happening today, where will the government be in a week, but what we're here to do instead of that is really think about some of the kind of long-term things that are going on. So really think about some of the big demographic challenges that are happening and what that means for, for policy today. Um, and I think, you know, as we'll come on to talk about, uh, a lot of what is happening to Liz Truss and her government dealing with a period of low growth, fiscal pressures, they can be linked back to what's going on in, in, terms, of, in terms of demographics. So hopefully tonight's event will give us a chance to step back slightly from the chaos that we've been having over, over the past few weeks. It gives us a chance to really think about uh, what's happening. So to help us do that, we have two fantastic speakers today. So first, you're going to hear from Armlan Roy, who is the founder of Global Macro Demographics. He also finds time to be a research associate at the LSE, an honorary research fellow at the Institute uh, and Faculty of Actuaries. So he knows his demographics. And he's also been talking about demographics for years in the private sector, in banks, and has been way ahead of all the rest of us in terms of, in terms of thinking through, through these issues. And he is also the author of Demographics Unraveled here. So holding up the, uh, holding up the actual book. Now, I, I should remind you that there is a discount for this book if you uh, go onto the webpage for this event. So that's, uh, that's definitely something to, uh, to take advantage of there. Um, we're also going to hear from Norma Cohen. Norma is a former Financial Times journalist. She's reported on fund management issues, pensions, is also one of the uh, long-standing experts in this country. It's one of the people who was talking about demographics before it got uh, so cool and fashionable, which I'm sure you can all agree that's, that's where we are today. Um, so, um, as ever, um, you know, we'll, we'll um, have some time after hearing from our speakers for, uh, to have a debate. Now, there's a, a lot of people in the room, which I think is great. I think it's about as many as I've uh, seen in the room since, since COVID. So it feels like the pandemic is hopefully over. Um, fingers, fingers crossed on that. Um, and we, we'll also have chance to hear from people online. So submit your questions through through our Slido page. The hashtag is demographic destiny, which sounds slightly ominous, but hopefully we will uh, find some, some good parts to that as well. So without further ado, I'm gonna hand over to Armlan. 
Thank you. Thanks, James. Check one, two, three. Can everyone hear me? Am I audible? Okay. I'm going to start off with three apologies. Number one, I haven't spoken behind a podium in 16 years. I'm not about to start. <laughs> I speak in 50 events a year at least. So it's not going to happen. I look into your eyes and speak. I don't quite care about whether I'm captured by the camera. As long as you can capture me, that's fine. Second, I'm quite strong in my views. I come from a training school of five macro Nobel laureates. I challenge them, I challenge leaders. But if I'm wrong, or if I feel that there's something more that I've missed out, I'll come and say, sorry, let's kind of engage. But I'm quite strong in telling the world that they miss a trick. I'm going to contradict in a little while our chairman who said demographics is long term. That's one of the basic things I will contradict because I used to think that as a macro professor that demographics is long term. It's all about numbers. The third thing is I, in contrast to most people, I spent 19 years at Credit Suisse, four years at State Street Global Advisors, traveling 40, 50 countries, advising governments, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, etc. And my biggest clients turned out to be later hedge funds and private equity. So that's the contradiction that demographics is not just applicable to the long-term governments, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, etc. And I will attribute and acknowledge um, how I learned from all of them. Everything I've learned out here is thanks to clients. 90% of the learning is thanks to clients. I never thought of studying demographics because my training, I don't know where you were during the 87 crash, I was teaching a room full of MBA students derivatives in Boston University. State Street Fidelity portfolio managers were in my class. So my training is macro monetary policy derivatives. I didn't know how to spell demographics. When in the year 2000, my head of research came and said, will you study demographics? I said, what's that got to do with markets in Credit Suisse? And things that I know a little bit about, which is portfolios, macro policy, etc. And he said, oh, we need it because demographics is important to insurance companies and pension funds. We are missing a trick out there. You need to understand that. Three days later, he asked me for a business plan. And I said, there are two things I can do with demographics. Number one, as a teacher of global growth, I will link demographics to global growth and debt. Second, as a teacher of derivatives, I will link it to, should you invest in equities, bonds, real estate, and how should you do risk management? Those are two things I've taught for 20 plus years, so I can relate it. And that's what hopefully I'll be able to share with you. So let's, oops, what did I do? I tried to move forward. And it says, you, you, you finished your presentation. <laughs> Back to the start. Okay. Oh, that's super. Let's go out to the pub. George, you ready to so foot the bill? <laughs> okay, let's try it second time. Yeah. Okay. So I need to thank the Resolution Foundation and the Society for Professional Economists for giving me the opportunity. I hate Zooms, I hate virtual. So even last year, November 4, 2021, I was the person who went and addressed 150 Dutch ALM pensions people the day before the Dutch government said no more in-house events. So I prefer in-person, traveling, speaking, learning, and being proven wrong. So this is the book. It's at the interface of economics, finance, and actuarial science. Uh, you may be able to get uh, a discount. Check with Tara on this book because the publishers indicated you would. 
why is this so important for me? Because when I started doing demographics, people said it's about age, it's long term, and it's relevant to pension funds. All three I will contradict because I look at demographics not like a demographer. I'm not a trained demographer. I'm a macro finance person looking at demographics, seeing how it matters for economies and markets. That's my remit. Not just birth rates, death rates, as people like to look at it, but I will make it relevant as I have to investors, policymakers, and academics, even the IMF uses a lot of money. So this is what I've connected demographics to. Look at the left-hand side and walk down those uh, letters, D, E, M, O, G, all of them. So discount rates, economic growth, mortality, governance, inflation, inequality, all those are important. But let me quote the biggest management guru of 20th century and the guru of all pensions gurus, according to Canadian and Dutch pension funds. He had the following quotation in Management Challenges for 21st Century. His name is Peter Drucker. He said, demographics is the single most important factor. We do not pay attention to, yet when we do pay attention, we miss the point. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe all of us for a large part of our life and traditionally through the demographics lens, absolutely missed the point. So how did I come out with this? I looked at those days, there was no Google, there was Yahoo. So I looked at etymologically, what's the word origin of demographics? Demos is people, graphos is characteristics. Nowhere in the etymology or the definition of demographics is age involved. We just chose one characteristic age, and I said age is the most important. Wrong, let me give you a contradiction. My wife and I, we are the same age. We have five degrees. She grew up in one city all her life, Delhi, and then came to London. I grew up in 14 cities in India, then went to Iowa, Boston, then traversed to London. Very different. I like watching Arsenal, I like watching cricket, basketball, football. That's what I used to teach statistics. My wife would like to go to the museum, opera, concerts, things like that. Very different. Same age, yet very different. What matters? Background. Women are different than men. What also does matter is how many people you grew up with. So psychology shows us that people who grew up in families with five children are very different than single child families. We never consider that. If you consider age as the summary statistic, that's wrong. So demos is people, graphos is characteristics. The most important characteristic of everyone in this room is from the time you're born till the time you die, you are a consumer. A baby born in Great Ormond Street Hospital is a consumer. So is the oldest woman born, uh, aged 114, born in Okinawa, Japan. They are consuming very different things. And most of us are also workers. Consumers consume the bulk of uh, GDP and workers make up the GDP. And therefore, I believe that age or numbers of people are not everything that demographics is about. The second thing I'm going to claim is, Demographics affects income statement and balance sheets in the world for individuals, households, corporates. Let's look at a company or let's look at Resolution Foundation. Okay, The employees of Resolution Foundation, they get paid. So employees are costs and clients are revenues. If you look at it that way, revenues and 
uh, expenses, i.e. consumers and workers affect income statement and balance sheet for individuals, households, corporates and nations. And we therefore need to look at it from an economic, macroeconomic lens of income statements and balance sheets. Now most people divide the world into three groups. Please note that is absolutely old-fashioned, wrong, outdated and misses the point. So this is, I first I told you that age is not a summary statistic. Companies as well as countries are affected. Look at this chart. This shows you that the super old, we just look at 65 plus as the old. The super old are the 80 plus. They are growing at roughly four times the overall population change. Four times. And it's not just here. It's in Japan, it's in India, it's in China. The 80 plus are the fastest growing. Why do I mention that? The country which is growing old the fastest, Japan, the 80 plus are responsible. I'm just giving you 2016 when I presented to the Bank of Japan and the uh, Japanese Treasury in a four-hour QE seminar. I showed them that roughly 90% of the increase in debt was on account on the expenditures on the 80 plus pensions, healthcare, long-term care. So we need to focus on that and that is what is driving down uh, Europe, Japan and other countries. How increasing longevity affects us all? This is a very important paper. You could get it. Uh, I'm very proud of this paper because the person who introduced me at this conference runs the Bank of Japan now. It was given in Tokyo. This is a keynote speech given in Tokyo at a longevity conference uh, which spanned three days. How increasing longevity affects us all? Let me give you a, an insight into longevity that most people, at least I didn't have as a macro professor. So I'm going to give you an example. I want all of you to pay attention to this because this will just change your perspective of what demographics is about. UK example, real life example. 91 year old, today alive in Omskirk. <coughs> Omskirk is just near Liverpool, okay? That 91-year-old has a 69-year-old son who's a doctor in Liverpool. The 69-year-old has a 44-year-old daughter. The 44-year-old daughter has a 23-year-old daughter with one-year-old twins. Five generations exist. Two generations of retirees. Four generations not working. And what are we doing? We are pressing F9 on actuarial models and economic models that have been done 30, 40 years ago. You know what F9 is? Recalculate. So if the model is wrong and the model is not changing, we are going to get things wrong. The models are correct for when Jeff Boycott was basically learning how to hold a bat. It's not correct when my kids would learn how to play cricket when they are on the grounds. Second, so I challenge existing asset and time allocation framework because the 91-year-old says, should I give the money to the 69-year-old or to the 46-year-old or to the 22-year-old or the one-year-old? We don't know. Economics has no guidance. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the real world and leave your books aside. Those books are jaded. Second, governments and societies, I will show you that policy changes in labor, education, health, pensions, and social benefits are necessary. The school that I come from, macro school with five Nobel laureates, believes that three things, employment, inflation, and GDP, are the three parameters you need to know macroeconomics. 
but there are three other parameters of policy which are important. Monetary policy, fiscal policy, but very, very, very much more important policy which the current government is forgetting is structural change policy. Who has been talking about that? Abe-san, who talked about the third arrow for Japan, saying monetary fiscal policy is not doing much for us. So structural policy means change, labor, mobility, education, health, pension, social benefits. Asset managers, I worked 24 years in teaching asset allocation in the real uh, side of the economy. We need to reassess the frameworks and assumptions, develop new solutions for clients. Markowitz model that most portfolio managers use and CAPM is a single period model, not fit for purpose for long-term pensions and asset allocation. So sometimes it's better not to use wrong models than and think aloud. So we, I believe we need significant change in thinking and mindset given this. This is a paper I wrote in the year 2000. Everyone should take a look at it because it affects you. 49 governments, including yours, has tried to change retirement ages based on this. The first one was France, Lionel Jospin, the prime minister of uh, France at that time, then Germany, then Japan. So the th why is it called demographic manifesto? This is how do you deal with the aging time bomb. It's a 12-page chart book. My 16-year-old can flip through it in five minutes. So for you guys, it's two minutes to understand how this affects your future. Abolish mandatory retirement age. The retirement age of 65 was decided by Otto von Bismarck in 1892 in Germany, when the life expectancy of the average German was 46 years old. Most people didn't live till 65. Today, most of you are likely to live till 100. My father's 90, he ran his last marathon when he was 87. You're definitely likely to live till 100. And he didn't bank on living beyond 65. He's living till 90. What are we going to do? We really need to have flexible, enabled retirement and abolish fixed retirement ages. Many governments close gender gaps to better utilize female work potential. Liz Truss, wake up, please. Understand. 19% is the male-female labor force participation gap in the G20. 19%. Women live longer than men. There are more university students who are women than men. They are multitaskers. And yet, we relegate them to a life post-retirement of poverty when we do not give them equal wages. They get paid 21% less than men on average. Okay? Rethink and implement immigration policies. Let's be selective. We don't need to bring in immigrants for 30 years, part-time, part-year, part-week. Australia and Canada at least get a C on my immigration policies. I gave the US a D, and the Secretary of Labor threw me out of his office, later asked me for policy prescriptions, so I connected them to Australia. So selective immigration is very important, and fourth is outsourcing and offshoring. Let's look at this very quickly. All, the point I want to make is do not club all advanced countries together. They are very, very different. Japan, Germany, Italy are shrinking in terms of populations. And whenever you think of population, remember me for one thing. Everyone in the population is a consumer. You should not care about populations. You should care about consumers. Old age dependency ratio, look how different they are. Japan to US, very, very different. Then I'm going to show you growth. I've been showing this on growth to every hedge fund in US since the year 2007. This is an ECB model. It's not my model, but they thanked me for having popularized it 
across 60, 70 countries. This says if you have GDP growth, it is the sum total of working age population growth, labor productivity growth and labor utilization growth. If somebody were to give you those three and you add them, you would get GDP growth. And in 73 countries I look at, if you pick up my book, it shows you that GDP growth is going down. If GDP growth is going down and GDP per capita growth is going down, that's bad for financial markets, banking, asset management, etc. You can't do much about it except understand that the main reason GDP growth is going down is this thing in the middle, labor productivity growth. How many burgers do I flip per hour? How many articles do I write in a year? How many clients do I see? How many products do I sell? All that is going down for all major economies. And how can you increase it? Answers are very simple. Number one, hire more women. Number two, hire more young people. The highest labor productivity growth in this room belongs to the youngest of people, not to me. People like me are working 17 hours a day trying to ensure that my labor productivity growth does not go down or does not become negative. The young people we need and we need to use technology. We wrote a paper on that and you can get that by looking. Demographics has driven inflation historically. George Buckley's um, <coughs> colleague from Deutsche Bank wrote this by looking at 400 years of inflation saying that, Jim Reed, that the biggest reason for inflation is population, but they missed a trick. It's not inflation alone. Consumers lead to demand-side inflation. Workers lead to supply-side inflation. You need to understand, is it demand-side inflation or supply-side? In the 70s oil shock, we had supply-side inflation. During COVID, we had supply shocks as well as demand. We need to understand uh, both of those. Now let me show you why Europe is nearly bankrupt. Pensions, long-term care, and health care, if you look at here, 11.8, 1.7, 6.8, you add them, that's more than 20%. 20% of GDP, no country in the world can afford that. I'm called Mr. Unsustainable Promises in the European Commission for having predicted in 2004 that Greece will go bankrupt. We had Mr. Draghi and... Uh, <coughs> lots of other people in the room, including the current ECB president. And this is unaffordable unless younger populations keep increasing and agree to pay taxes of 70-80%. On the left-hand side, old age, sickness, health care, disability accounts for 80% of the taxes. Where is the money to devote towards young people, towards technology? towards care, we really need to rethink these things and break some of these promises. This is a chart which shows you that there's a lot of guff in the markets. We get to think that the S&P 500 can be explained by the middle-old ratio, and absolutely wrong. This just says when you're middle-aged, you put money into stocks. When you're old, take money out of stocks, and therefore it's a correlation story. Absolutely wrong. Who's used it? Fed, Bank of England, Bank of Japan, IMF, Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, all of us have used it for the last 30, 40 years. This is what I teach in Statistics 101, never use a chart like this. This is a chart based on correlation, not on causation. This is like saying sun came out, Amlan shaved, correlation is 99.99% except the days I was in hospital. And that doesn't mean that my shaving caused the sun to come out. 
So please remember, these are charts used by everyone. I, that's why I'm showing you. Equity premium, house prices, bond yields, very technical papers. Andrew Ang at uh, <coughs> BlackRock wrote this paper. I did some papers, but I want to highlight things of others, demographics and asset prices. But let me sh show you interest rates. Stan Fisher, all interest rates model, the basic interest rate in the world is called R star. It's called the Hurston Lobach Williams model that everyone tends to use. And there was a lot of discussion. Why is that model not working? Ultimately, they said the model's not working because we forgot to include globalization. We forgot to include demographics. So now people like Stan Fisher believe that the low level of global real interest rates is affected by demographics. And interest rates are affected by what you're borrowing today, not what you'll borrow 10 years later. So people who tell you demographics is long term, tell them go away because consumers are buying today, workers are working today, not just 10 years later, and they are going to be different. Philip Turner said that the long term interest rate is also affected by demographics, but there's another influence. Who influences the long term interest rates? The pension funds, the insurance companies, much more than the Bank of England, Bank of Japan who basically believe that they have a lot more power. And if you don't believe me, read Anath Admati's book, who said, bankers without clothes, maybe some central bankers also don't have clothes. What affects housing demand and supply? Again, look at it. People look only at demand, population growth, labor market, wages and income. I look at supplies. Supply is affected by demographics, labor and material supply, business credit, state of the economy. So demographics alone cannot tell you much, but her behavior, his behavior, his behavior over age will tell you a lot. No one can predict five years later whether she's going to buy Samsung Galaxy version 29 and he's going to buy iPhone version 18. If you can't predict it, I take you to a basic question before ending on this slide. And that basic question basically says, if I'm age 65, and he says, Amlan, retire today. And she says, Amlan, you will die when you're 85. How much money do I need for 20 years post-retirement? I've asked this at 700 plus conferences. 29 Nobel laureates. Seven government heads. No one can answer it. Why? For 20 years, no one can tell me inflation, interest rate, taxes, equity premium. And am I going to retire in Omskirk or in London or in Delhi? So if I retire with 300,000, I showed the government of Illinois bankrupt on pensions. If I retire with 300,000 uh, <coughs> in Chicago, then my money lasts probably only about 17 years. But if I retired in DeKalb, Illinois, it lasted 29 years. So we don't know the answers to those things. We need to think more deeply. These are the sectors I'm bullish on. Number one is pharma and biotech. Number two, financial services. Number three, leisure and luxury. Number four and five are natural resources, infrastructure. Number six is emerging markets. And lastly, I've been saying since 2002, alternatives matter rather than equities and bonds. Look at this. In Australia through US, alternatives in the last column have been growing from 1% in Netherlands to 12%, 9% in Switzerland to 30, US 5 to 19. Why? Because equities and bonds are not doing the job for us, particularly bonds. Government bonds, when we were growing up, were giving us 4-5% real. 
they were giving us 7-8%. Today they are giving us negative or close to zero. We shouldn't even hold them in our portfolio, I argue. We should hold corporate bonds, infrastructure, emerging bonds, and alternatives, which include real estate, infrastructure, commodities. Oh, this is my most important, passionate one. So, Chair, I really uh, request you that this is a paper we wrote based on 143 countries. It's taught in economics courses. If we give women equality, there are four golden dividends. Number one, GDP growth goes up. Number two, debt goes down. Women live longer than men. If you empower them and allow them equal opportunities, less debt needs to be paid off. Number three, income inequality goes down. And number four, please do read my paper on this. We published this on International Women's Day about three years ago and also at the IMF. Uh, and number four, what happens is sustainability goes up. Who's more sustainable, the mother or the father? Who, who do they learn sustainability from? The kids. They learn it from the mother. And not my studies, studies done by uh, World Resources Organization, WHO, etc., show that women do better sustainability. And on that, I conclude by saying, understanding macro demographic fundamentals is critical, but the changing behavior of consumers and workers is absolutely critical. I'm being forced to learn how to work with an Apple when all my life since the age of 16, I've worked on a laptop. So will I change to an Apple? That will change. And retirement planning requires changing in mindset, tools, and asset allocation. So please, let's try to look at the world more holistically to understand asset prices, longevity uh, dynamics, growth, inflation, debt together. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Abhinav. I'm not sure Tara will have captured every every moment of that. So it just tells you why you need to be in the room to get the uh, to get the full effect. So, so really, you have to, to understand. You don't understand the world if you don't understand demographics. Is the main takeaway from that. My other takeaway from that was that we should give more jobs to to the young, which is a very good resolution foundation um, message here. I'm just trying to judge whether it's a popular message in the room. That's not totally clear, but, but hopefully. Also, the OECD published a series of publications, Live Longer, Work Longer. I add one more thing in between. Live Longer, Learn Longer, and Work Longer. So in Singapore and in Korea and China, they are training their retiree workers 55 to 50 to 55 to retrain for other jobs and paying for it. So now we, we turn to Norman. Now, are, are you going to be as, as walking around the room or a little bit more static? No, I'm, I'm going to be a bit more static. And of course, uh, uh, I'm a long-time admirer of Amlan. When I was a journalist, uh, he was one of the few economists who one quarter to the next ever paid attention to demography. So uh, just how did I fall into demography? I don't think any other newspaper has ever had a demography correspondent. It was a pure accident for me. And by the way, I'm usually sitting where you're sitting and taking notes. So this is a bit weird for me. Uh, so uh, what happened was um, I had been the pensions correspondent for a long time. And pensions is a very sort of, you know, grainy, gritty, boring topic. But And I went off and did other topics, including uh covering the real estate industry. And every time something would happen in pensions, I would get dragged back to write the definitive explanation. And then uh, in the early noughties, if all of you remember the bursting of the dot-com bubble, companies started blowing up and what were deemed to be fully funded pensions in the DB space turned out to have maybe 
half the relevant assets needed to pay all benefits. This was a crisis of major proportions. And so the FT said, no, no, you, you go and you know, we'll give you this fancy title and you write about boring uh, financial topics, including pensions, companies and their pensions, but also things like clearing and settlement and payment systems and, you know. And uh, I very much wanted to be um, on top of my story. And uh, very early on, I stumbled across something that made me sit up. And it was the IBM DB pension scheme. Staff in IBM in America were suing IBM for closing the defined benefit pension scheme. And what they wanted to replace it with was something that would really very much reduce investment risk. And, but they could have done something else and they chose not to. It was going to be almost as expensive. And that's when the light bulb went on and I realized that investment risk was not the only form of risk that pensions, defined benefit pensions faced. What happened was they wanted to avoid longevity risk. It never occurred to me that this was a serious risk before. So I started looking into, well, just how much has longevity risen? And it turned out that on average in Germany, just as an example, men who turned state pension age, which I'm pretty sure was 65 at the time, were living 30% longer in retirement by the year 2000 than they had been in 1970. And that, after that, I started looking at longevity as a, as a major risk for pension funds. But what question occurred to me at the time was, well, if that's the case, if they're all living so much longer, why isn't the population of Germany rising more rapidly? And then I realized they stopped having babies. And this was particularly true of Western Germany and Eastern Germany was starting to follow. And I was aware of it. And years later, I wanted to be the economics correspondent um, and they were, the FT was very reluctant to make me economics correspondent, I suspect, because they were afraid they weren't going to find anybody willing to write about very bore, you know, I'm sorry, some of you must be journalists and know what I'm talking about. And uh, they said to me, okay, if you want to be the economics correspondent, well, you can have the job, but you have to take pensions with you into the economics room. Well, it did not take long for me to see that... Um, the pension challenges were uh, not just about asset allocation. By the middle of 2009, every single pension fund of any sort, of any, any sort, whether it was defined benefit, defined contribution, pay-as-you-go, hybrid models, every single one of them was in trouble. And I realized this is not about asset allocation. We're not going to invest our way out of this. This is about population change. And it, what I had realized many years earlier was that the DB pension schemes in Britain that were in the most trouble were in older, declining industries. They had a lot of pensioners or deferred members and very few active members making contributions. Then I get into the economics room and I discover there are entire countries that look like that. And that's when I really became interested. I'm, uh, I, I, Amlon Roy's talk was so comprehensive, I, I, I feel a bit ashamed to follow him. What I'm going to do is to talk about one aspect of population change that has been particularly gripping to me and which I feel is at least as great a challenge in economic and financial terms as is rising longevity at older ages. It's not just rising longevity, by the way. 
it's rising longevity at much older ages. So between 1911 and 1961, the average number of years that a British man lived beyond age 65 rose by one year. It went from 11 years to 12 years. And then another 10 years go by, it rises by another year. And it's not until the 1990s that it does this. I have a chart I used to show, but it's a sharp rise at older ages is a relatively recent phenomenon. But equally, so is what demographers, and they talk in the lingo, refer to as sub-replacement rate fertility. And I want to dwell on this because, as Amlin was pointing out, everyone is a consumer, and up to a certain point, most of us are taxpayers. You know, where does GDP come from? Where does output come from? It comes from those of us who are at work and producing and consuming. And as people age, particularly past age 80, you find that consumption and demand start to fall. So when they're 55 to 65, that's the group that's buying the Honda motorbikes, the high end, you know, and traveling around. It's, it's as they get older. Um, and as Amlan's chart showed you, I mean, just to, uh, just to throw off some numbers, um, and it's not like this is a mystery. It's not like we don't know this is coming, because the OBR every year produces something called the long-term fiscal forecast, and they show you with a very nice chart, chart 4.11, I think, how much we're going to be spending on various age groups for key government services. I mean, just to, uh, you know, pick off my figures, um, it's, so currently, in, in the last report, I used the 2021, and the population that has the highest health care cost is that aged 80 to 99. And currently, those are 4.7% of the population. In 10 years time, only 10 years time, all of you will still be here. You'll still be paying taxes. That's going to grow by about a third as a percentage of the population. And um, by 2050, that will be roughly 10% of the population. Why does it matter? Because for working age people, age 25 to 54, core working age people, average expenditure on healthcare is about 2,300 pounds per person. By the time you're 80 to 99, that's 13,000, over 13,000. You can see without any exaggeration why um, with fewer workers paying less tax, this is going to be a challenge. And what worries me is when I listen to discussions about public policy, even from very well-respected think tanks, I hear very, very little about how we need to adapt public policy to prepare for this. We cannot wait until 2050 is upon us. We, we need to start thinking about it now. And I'm very much in uh, Amlan Roy's court about um, retirement ages. And it, what disturbs me is that we have a, a mindset now, particularly since the Second World War, where we think that there's such a thing as a universal age of retirement and it's our seventh decade of life and it's appropriate that we 
withdraw from the labor force and enjoy life. I think that one day, our 2050, we'll look back and see this as a kind of a golden age of retirement. Those days are over. And I said this at a conference um, uh, a few weeks ago, and I saw the look on people's faces, but I honestly think that we, uh, this concept of mass retirement in our seventh decade of life is something that will go by the boards. Um, and uh, the other thing that I think we need to face up to is the UN population statistics suggest world population will start to shrink, contract by the end of this century, by the end of, by 2100. In fact, there have been other studies that have looked at the UN's figures and decided that they are far too optimistic and they're expecting global population to start to contract shortly after the middle of this century. I just want to remind you that historically this is almost unprecedented. We've not seen this kind of global population contraction since the Black Death of the 14th century. And we need to think about what, what do we do. Um, so is there a solution to sub-replacement rate fertility? And, and forgive me for talking gibberish, but there is such a thing as uh, what's considered um, each woman needs to produce 2.1 babies broadly to keep population stable. Of course, nobody has 2.1 babies, but every 10th woman produces three babies, okay? Um, so what, what do we do about this? Is there, are there policy measures we can do? What causes this? It's very difficult to say what causes it, but we can talk quite convincingly about what correlates with it. And one of the, the term, economists tend to talk about opportunity costs. And what two things that correlate very strongly with sub-replacement rate fertility are A, female participation in tertiary education, which leads in turn to female workforce participation. Now, female workforce participation, particularly among women who've had higher, you know, tertiary education, means at, in, in very broad terms, they're more productive. Output per person per hour is going to be higher than for some person who's barely finished secondary school. So we want these people in the workforce. And what we see is that in countries where economic opportunities for women to participate at work have broadened and female workforce participation rates have risen, fertility has fallen. It's very fashionable to attribute what's going on in China, which has had sub-replacement rate fertility since the one-child policy was introduced, to say, ah, it's the one-child policy. Well, guess what? It's not. And tertiary education participation by women in China is rising very, very rapidly, as is workforce participation rates. So, um, and by the way, it's not, you know, it's not limited, it's all over, it's all over the industrialized world and, and to emerging markets as well. And China is, is not an exception. I mean, the really interesting countries to look at are, for example, Iran. Iran has female workforce, female tertiary education for those who, as a percentage of those who completed secondary education, which is about as high as the OECD average. Iran has gone below replacement rate. Equally, Turkey, another country with very rigid, that advocates very rigid family structures in the same way that Iran does, is, go, is getting there. They're very close to replacement rate and below. And women, as a percentage of university graduates, are rising. They're not as high as men, but they're rising rapidly. And what, what, econo what economists would 
use, the phrase economists would use, would point out that bearing and raising children raises opportunity costs for women. And policies that try to address ways to mitigate opportunity costs to women might, if they won't boost fertility, it's quite interesting to look at the Scandinavian countries, which have very family-friendly policy. They're also sub-replacement rate. Uh, and uh, however, female workforce participation rates are higher. So at least you're getting uh, consumption, spending, output, which is higher than it would otherwise be if you didn't have support. The most interesting industrialized country to look at is France, which has a fertility rate. It's, it's below replacement, but not by much. It's about 1.9 or something, 1.8, 1.9. And the question is whether the particular style of... Uh, uh, you know, female support, mother support that France has put in place is more effective than um, that perhaps which is in place elsewhere. I would just point out that Britain, among OECD countries, has the single most expensive and inflexible childcare arrangements of any OECD, uh, certainly in, within Europe. And um, if Britain, uh, just to point out, Britain's the ONS official forecast of um, fertility, what's called total fertility rate, has just been downgraded from an estimate of 1.78 per woman to 1.56. I mean, this is, you know, and, and this is the future. So uh, I think what we see when we look at differentials amongst industrialized countries, uh, similar economies, we can see that there are differences, and what we need to look at is what kinds of policies have been put in place in each of these countries that might account for the differences in total fertility rate and female workforce participation rates. You know, there's a lot of gobbledygook about how women get shortchanged in pensions. It's not that they get shortchanged in pensions, it's that they, they withdraw from the job market. So, you know, what, there's nothing about pension design which inherently punishes women. And I say this as, as somebody with a pension. Um, it, it's workforce participation rates that determine the ability to consume and the ability consume, to consume after we are no longer physically capable of participating in the labor market. And I'll cut it short because I can see I'm, I'm getting into mine. Thank you very much, Norma. All right, um, we, we are in danger of agreeing a lot over here. So demographics are important, demographics shape everything. I'm gonna do something that's mind-blowingly novel in this post-pandemic world. I'm gonna to come to the room and ask you for questions in a moment. So get your questions ready. We'll have roving mics picking up questions, but I'm just gonna take one question from, uh, from Slido first. Uh, so if I could just bring that up. Um, so, so basically, what's what's happening here is Alex is calling me on my my flippant comment here, which is saying, if if the answer is to hire more more young people, how are we going to do that with how are we going to get higher growth with with fewer uh, young people in the world? And let's let's broaden this out a little bit um, and try and get some disagreement going on what the uh, what the policy answers might be to all this. So. Um, uh, so if we can broaden this to, in a world of um, uh, demographic headwinds as the population is aging, how do we 
how do we go about getting growth? What, what should we be doing? And I'm, I'm going to start with you on Lun for this. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Alex, for your question. Maybe I wasn't clear. Uh, it's all in terms of growth. So when I look at a 22, 23-year-old who used to join Credit Suisse or State Street Global Advisors, they would come from university with a very low level of productivity, but would go up a sh very sharp uh, learning curve. And therefore, the gains from every year that they spent kept going up. In, in contrast, when you look at older people, they're quite set in their ways, they're quite mature, and the growth isn't there. The younger people are also much more adaptable to uh, technology. There aren't so few young people. What is the problem is they are, they are going to be much younger people, but youth unemployment is one of the big problems in the world still, particularly in emerging markets countries. And since this is inequality, let me tell you something I predicted on Feb 26, 2020 in the Central Bank of Austria and Central Bank of Czech Republic. COVID without global coordination is going to cause emerging markets four to five years to recover and dramatically increase inequality with women giving up a lot of the gains of uh, shrinking the gap uh, that men had over them. And that's happening. Um, I do think young people adopt technology and therefore I don't see a contradiction that uh, we can get higher growth rate if you replaced one of me with three younger people or even two younger people their labor productivity growth would be higher and therefore it would be uh, better for growth. Now there is no contradiction between young people and old people in labor force participation. The Center for Retirement Research in US, the Bureau of Labor St uh, Studies in US, as well as the Wharton Economic Center show that old people's jobs can't be done by young people. Bernanke, Greenspan, Mervyn King, their jobs can't be done by a 20-year-old and vice versa or a 22-year-old can't be done by Bernanke. So I don't think there's a contradiction there. All right, Norma, it's all about who you employ. Um, I think to a certain extent it, it may be, but um, I'm not convinced that that's necessarily the case. It's very interesting to look at workforce participation rates among elderly adults. So look at Japan. Japan, something like 20% of adults aged 80 to 84 are working, are employed in Japan. Japan has an unusually good track record. And um, the kinds of jobs they may be doing might reflect workplace rigidities. So there are certain rigidities in, in Japan that create opportunities for jobs that elderly people are physically capable of doing. Uh, but I'm not convinced that, um, I'm not convinced that people, I, even what we think of as very older ages cannot be trained to work, uh, not exactly as younger folk do, uh, but certainly participate more. One of the areas where we, certainly in this country, uh, less so in America, I would say, uh, but where we in Britain are very weak, has to do with on-the-job training. And uh, as somebody who recently went back to school, I encountered this uh, amongst professors. And I feel the UK university system is very much to blame. I learned that the definition of a mature student in Britain is 26. <laughs> uh, so um, I do. I feel that uh, Britain's university system has quite a lot to answer for, uh, and I can see in my own university where I did my 
my PhD. I, I, you know, I think they're better than most, but I think if I were thinking about how to lift productivity, I would first invite the university system to get together with employers and have some very serious discussions about the kinds of training, the nature of the training, and um, you know, when the training is held. I was very fortunate to grow up in New York City. We had a city university of New York, it was free, and I was a night student. I held a full-time job and went to school at night. And we had all of the admin available to us. We had a dean of the night school, the libraries were open, we even went to the head of our department and said, look, we have great professors. We want a rotation. We want the best professors to come and teach in the night school. And he did it to his credit. Um, but there's none of that. I don't see any sense in the, in the British training program, the British university system, that there's a need to be flexible to, you know, to teach older workers new skills. I don't, I, I think Yes, there are rigidities. Yes, older workers may be resistant, but if you characterized it as this great opportunity to become wealthier, you know, and make new friends, it's entirely possible that that people would want to take advantage of it. And I think it's a great policy ch challenge. So, so, so it's all about getting more people working and getting more young people free education. Look, as a parent, no one's going to argue with that in this room. No. I, and I, I have two who are mercifully finished and out there working. Um, but yes, uh, and things that create obstacles for younger folk to obtain education are obstacles to future productivity, as I, as I see it. I, you know, and I will, and you know, I, I kind of, I, I shudder when I hear this um, decrying uh, liberal arts studies. Um, and that how everybody has to study SMT. One kid did English language and literature, and the other kid did classics. So, and they both work in, in tech. So, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in, in what the uh, li British liberal arts education can do for future productivity. But right. Make it easier to get there. Let's have some, some questions from the room. We see some uh, hands going up. The, these hands over here were incredibly fast. So let's take these two questions as one. This is going to test my memory skills. I can feel it already. Okay, uh, this is one for Norma. Um, I took on board what you were saying about declining fertility rates. There's no country in Europe that has fertility at replacement level now. I'm not aware of any country that has been able to recover its fertility once it has fallen below replacement level. Are you aware of any? No, no you're raising a very interesting point that um, demographers have raised. I mean, there's a, one demographer in particular at University of Vienna who argues that once uh, fertility rates fall below about 1.5 or 1.3 per woman, that it's impossible for it to, to recover, partly because the idea of having a single child becomes a norm. Uh, and there's quite a lot of academic research on this. But, but look, fertility rates have bounced around a bit. You know, we do, we ha we, for example, in Britain, after falling below, I don't know, 1.7, uh, in, in the noughties, we had uh, some fertility rates rise again to about 1.7, 8, 9. And part of that was there was a huge wave of immigration in, uh, particularly after EU expansion. And there are various studies that show that immigrants in, um, in any country, any, to any country, 
tend to have higher fertility rates than the native born. It, it, it falls once they're a generation or two in. So Italy, for example, which had lots of Ukrainians come in to care for their elderly, those immigrants and their children were having more babies and did give a little bit of a bounce to Italy. Um, so there are some things, I mean, interestingly, the UK, uh, the ONS, it, it, when it did the 2011 census, showed itself to be completely unaware of what immigration was doing to its population because they uh, undercounted British female immigrants by 336,000 um, because they didn't post um, sense, you know, immigration officials at um, Luton and Stansted airports, which is where, of course, the low-cost flights cut from Eastern Europe. So, so um, there are instances where certain things happen, like immigration, that lead to a bounce in fertility from the very low rates. Um, you know, uh, and it's not impossible to recover some of it, but there is a view amongst de demographers that once it gets below a certain point, that recovery is impossible. So I'm going to bring Amlan in on this, and then we'll go to the yeah. The so I, I'd directly like to answer that. I'm in. I've been advising Nordic governments fertility rates in Nordic governments in 1982. 1.4, 1.36, 1 1.32. Today they are all around 1.7. They may not rise up to two. What have they done? They've given women, in, uh, I, I can't give you exact details because of NDA, but look at the rough spin that I'm going to give you. If you have two kids within five years, you retain your seniority in a uh, Nordic country. You get 40% tax breaks in addition, and you get creches for three years after your kids are born. So fertility rates go up. In the AP2s, which I advise, men are told, if you want your name on the paternity certificate, you also take leave when your kid is born and share that paternity maternity leave. So in AP2, AP3, I have clients where the lady, mother takes three days, she's not there, and the husband is not there for two days. They work in the same organization. Yeah, so, so men have to do their bit is, I think, what you said. No one could argue with that. Right, so we have the uh, second question. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit more about technology because it seems to me that there is an argument to su suggest that technology makes this problem worse on two dimensions. One is the role of uh, advances in medical technology increasing life expectancy. And on the other side, you've got the likes of AI, which is actually potentially reducing the demand for labor and therefore your efforts to increase labor participation. Was well, that for me? Because it's a pet question. I'd love to answer that. <laughs> so again, a plug. The best guy who's a guru on this advised three US presidents uh, and is now at Stanford. He wrote the book, The Race Against the Machine, Eric Brynolfsson. Please do read, he's written three, four books. So he presented at a conference and said, Amlan, so General Colin Powell was there, I was there. We'd finished our speeches, he was the last speaker. So he said, 80% of your jobs would be done by machines in next 30 years. And I'd spoken earlier. So General Powell asked him, who's going to do the jobs then uh, if all the jobs are not going to be, and what's going to happen? And he ducked it and said, we need a social benevolent social planner to ensure that actually people will uh, still be getting jobs and they will not be out of jobs. So in other words, it can't be fully 80%. But on the other hand, the 
professor who's head of computer science and AI at MIT gave us a talk saying that even computer science and AI means that there will be ways that will make us far more productive. Net-net we will gain, but the question is, will human beings, Cliff, will human beings control machines or will machines control human beings is ultimately what that boils down to. No computer will be as fast as what we can kind of program it to when it goes and plays against the grandmasters. So great. I think it's a bit philosophical whether we will control machines or whether they'll control. But there is a problem, definitely. Um, yes, but it's quite far. So there are many people, and I'm a critic of this, many people who talk nowadays about 100-year lives, but the percentage of people today who are above 100 are 0.000139%. So I'd much rather put them in the category of Elon Musk and Bill Gates and worry about the people who are between 60 to probably 90 and still are going to die poor because old age poverty rates have really increased. And let me draw some attention uh, about how people miss out on that. This is Resolution Foundation, pension inequality, I don't want to sweep it under the rug. So in 2012, at the uh, Tokyo Palace, there were 80 pension fund execs of Australia. They thought they have the best pension system in the world. This is at dinner and I apologized, I said I might spoil your dinner. How do you rate your system? Everyone average was 9.82 out of 10. I said, okay, now I'm going to present old age poverty rates. Highest in the world, Korea. Second highest in the world, Australia. I said, what's the objective of a system if you have the second highest old age poverty rates at 42%? Today, they've reduced it to 26% in the last 10 years or so. So yes, there are issues because people forget about the really, really old people. All right, is there a, a question over here? Is there two, let's try and take these two questions in one go. You just say your name as well, Wanyo. Hi, my name is uh, Chris Tavender from TFL. Um, Nora, a question for you, sort of going on to that night school example, um, and as well the opportunity cost of having children. I'm just wondering how we get out of this rut where our political overlords seem to want to prioritize spending on old age pensioners, i.e. read the triple lock, because their political parties are staffed by older people and older people vote, versus the narrative of working age benefit cuts. And it just seems like the system is stacked to favor the old. All right, let's have this other question before. Norman, yeah, yeah. I can feel you, you're about to jump I in. I am, I feel very sorry. Um, <clears throat> I haven't rem remembered a lot of statistics in my time. I'm, I'm retired, so I'm already in, in That's that. allowed. Pardon? That's allowed. That's not allowed, that's good. <laughs> I remembered a few years ago, I, I discovered that when the, the old age pension in this country was first started, there were about 12 workers paying taxes for every pensioner. We're down to about four workers mm. paying in for every pensioner. That number is going to go down. Mm. So if we're going to maintain pensions and the healthcare service at a reasonable level for the growing old people, we either have to increase the taxes on the workers or increase the number of workers, which is the argument, in this country at least, for more immigration. Because only with by increasing immigration, with the possibility of increased productivity along the way, will we actually get the, the, uh, the money in through taxes to actually maintain this rather large uh, uh, number of older pe old people like me. Great. Norma, do you want to take the first question? 
Um, what was it? it was the um, how to stop all spending go to the pensioners? Look, Adeline and I are used to talking about um, the economic and financial effects of aging. What we forget is that there are social and political, profound social and political ramifications of population aging and fertility decline as well. You know, I remember looking at a population pyramid. Why do we call it a population pyramid? There's lots and lots of young people and gradually very few at the top, like Amland's chart showed. And it was a pyramid. We call it a population pyramid. It's the shape of a pyramid. What we have now is a population obelisk. If we were to draw industrialized countries where it's pretty much the same at every age. And the real danger, not just for financial and economic reasons, but for political and social reasons as well, is that eventually it resembles the shape of a champagne flute, if you catch my drift. And that is, you know, you're not going to be able to address the issue you raise unless we think about how to uh, have intergenerational in, in, common interests of in, intergenerational the, the the group. If you look at um, pensioner income series, the group that's now aged sixty five to seventy five is the wealthiest pensioner group on record historically, and you know, and they're the ones screaming about don't raise state pension ages. Um, and um, I, I would just say one other thing about your point about population. Look. We assume in this country, because it's what we do, that we tax income. And I think, my own personal view, uh, and it's part of based on what I did my, my thesis on, which had to do with financing war, is that we need to think not just about financing the incomes of those who work, we need to think about, it's, it's controversial, that people don't like, but we need to think about how to tax wealth. And I will say, so after the First World War, so Britain is drowning in debt, okay? The debt service in 1923-24 was 40%. It ate up 40% of all the tax revenue collected. But one of the things that Britain did, in addition to levying an excess profits duty on businesses that did well out of war, it doubled the rate at which inheritance tax was charged. And not only did this help to pay off this mammoth and uh, very, very expensive World War I debt, it also led to an incremental decline in inequality, which you can see from all of the charts, that, and this is pre-beverage. Unemployment in the interwar years in Britain did not fall below 10%. There were no programs designed to cushion the effects of this. Very, very limited. And yet, inequality managed to decline, partly because Britain was willing to tax wealth. And I just, I know this is not popular and politicians don't want to raise it, but I, um, NISER, you know, the National Institute of Economic Social Research did a really interesting presentation recently on land taxes. And there's some discussion in the U.S. about land taxes, and I don't necessarily mean Henry George, but I just think that we are much too limited in, in the way we think about what should be taxed to provide for the greater good. All right, we're running over time. I'm very sorry about this. I blame the chair. Okay. It's been terribly chaired. But I'm going to give Amland the, the last word to answer the question. 
about taxes, but if I can just reframe it a little bit. So um, how do you bring down taxes as Liz Truss's government want to do in a world of ageing society? Or is uh, that even possible? I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm going to answer the Liz Truss <laughs> question, but answering his question is much more relevant. So one of the things that he escaped from is that not only is the baby boomer generation the richest generation today, but they are also the most lazy and selfish generation. Yes. <laughs> because he's wanting his taxes to be paid. I've been arguing ever since 2006, we really need to means test, just like Norma said, and ensure that the benefits are cut because of the same reason, the biggest mistake of corporate governance is making long dated promises when you don't know what they are going to cost. We need to renegotiate these promises. So let me tell you one thing which very advanced and good countries are doing. They are making promises conditional on the growth of the country, on the growth of the equity market of the country, the ratio of old to the young people, as well as ratio of women to the men. And those countries are way ahead of the curve. They're also managing to increase their fertility rates. To me, fertility rates are going down all over the world. But the whole world gets Chinese fertility rates wrong. One child policy did not reduce no. China's fertility rate. No. No. China's fertility rate is 1.64 children per woman, higher than that of Europe. Higher than that of Europe. So, and I did say that even when you get rid of the one child policy, it's not going to increase and it's no. not increased. No. They did get rid of it and it didn't. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, well, thank you. Thank you very much for that. I thought we were going to get through without any boomer bashing, but we, we, we just didn't, didn't quite manage it. Um, let's thank our panellists, and Roy and Norma Cohen, for an absolutely fa fascinating, I'm a fascinating hour. I'm a boomer, sir. I'm <laughs> well, That's fine. And thanks very much for watching. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.